0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Jason Stanley, Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, and author of How Fascism Works, who discusses Donald Trump's popularity despite his increasingly fascist rhetoric and the violence he incites among supporters. Morgan Fox, of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, who assesses the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services decision recommending marijuana be classified as a Schedule Three drug, and Carrie Baker. Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Smith College and a contributing editor at Ms. Magazine, who examines recent court rulings that have upheld extremist abortion laws that endanger lives. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: On New Year's Day, the Horn of Africa woke up to a surprise when Ethiopia's president, Abiy Ahmad, announced an agreement to lease a port on the coast of the breakaway state of Somaliland. The announcement shook the region, including Somalia, which claims control of northern Somalia, which borders the now volatile Red Sea. Ethiopia, a landlocked nation, is eager to get access to a port to expand international trade. In return, Somaliland, which seceded from Somalia in the early 1990s, would receive shares of Ethiopian airline stock and, more importantly, diplomatic recognition from Abiy Ahmed's government, the first nation in the world to do so. The Economist magazine reports that Somalia immediately attempted to nullify the agreement, claiming its sovereignty had been violated. Just days earlier, Somalia and Somaliland's leaders had agreed to reopen negotiations on the future status of the self-governing de facto state. Somalia's president, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, insisted the deal would only fuel support for the al-Shabaab Islamist rebel movement, which controls much of his nation's countryside. Per- and polyfluorinated substances, also known as PFAS or forever chemicals, are accumulating in wildlife, such as freshwater fish and deer that live in or close to rivers and streams where industrial sites and military bases used the chemicals. For decades, PFAS had been used to make fire retardant foam employed by fire departments and the military, as well as in the manufacture of cookware, water-repellent clothing, food wrappers and other consumer goods. Last year, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine published a federally-funded report that associated PFAS exposure with health effects including cancer, low birth weight babies, and decreased response to vaccines. According to a recent study, eating a single serving of contaminated freshwater fish can be the equivalent of drinking water containing high levels of PFAS for a month. At least 17 states have issued warnings about the hazards of eating PFAS-contaminated fish. But currently, there are no federal guidelines governing safe levels of these chemicals found in fish, so most states have few or no regulations at all. Federal efforts to curb PFAS exposure have focused mostly on drinking water. Last year, the EPA proposed the nation's first PFAS drinking water standards. Before the COVID pandemic, K3 Holdings, owned by heirs of the Texolini Textile Fortune, went on a buying spree in Los Angeles. The company bought 40 properties and used high-pressure tactics to drive rent-controlled tenants out of their apartments. These apartments would then be renovated and rented at inflated rates. Because Los Angeles did little to enforce tenants' rights, landlords had an incentive to exploit low-income renters. Gary Blasi, a law professor at UCLA, told the American prospect an increasing number of landlords want to cleanse rent-controlled apartments via harassment or eviction, then dramatically increase rents and their profit. This strategy has eliminated some of the city's most affordable housing, victimizing vulnerable populations. Rapidly rising housing values results in increasing homelessness and creates dangerous living conditions. This buy-and-displace tactic is not limited to Los Angeles or California. Even local tenants' rights ordinances have been relatively ineffective. However, when families in one of K-3 Holdings' buildings formed the Tenants' Association, they flooded city inspectors with complaints that succeeded in temporarily stopping the landlord's high-pressure tactics and harassment to drive them out. When tenants got together to organize, they achieved what they couldn't as individuals, fighting a large corporation with lots of lawyers, friends in City Hall, and able to absorb thousands of dollars in fines for mismanagement with little or no accountability. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. (laughs)
0: After Donald Trump's overwhelming victory in the January 15th Iowa caucuses, most pundits expect him to easily win the rest of the delegates he needs in coming weeks to clinch the Republican Party presidential nomination. While corporate media reports on the GOP primary campaign, with a narrow focus on the horse race, paying little attention to the former president's many lies about the 2020 election, Trump quotes Adolf Hitler, as he attacks leftists, Marxists, and immigrants as vermin, poisoning the blood of the country. At his campaign rallies, Trump talks openly about establishing a dictatorship on day one of his administration, should he win the 2024 election, and his intention to fire tens of thousands of government civil servants who refuse to pledge their loyalty to him. Trump is the first former president and major party presidential candidate to be charged with felonies and now faces 91 counts in four federal and state criminal cases. Your reporter spoke with Jason Stanley, Jacob Rowoski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, and author of How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Here he discusses Trump's continued popularity, the violence he incites as he issues threats targeting his perceived enemies, and corporate media's coverage of the threat Trump poses to democracy.
2: Trump has created a sort of showman narrative straight out of early to mid-20th century European fascism, Mussolini and Hitler. Like He is the aggrieved one, and it's this narrative of reclaiming the nation, uh, and and they're trying to get him, and it, it grips people. It's like a show. The Frankfurt School, who discussed European fascism, Nazi- Nazism particularly, talked about the leader transforming politics into spectacle. And, and we're seeing almost a textbook case of that in the case of Donald Trump.
0: As you've talked about in recent years, U.S. corporate media has long resisted calling out Trump for his authoritarian and fascistic rhetoric, as well as his actions in office. In recent months, some of the major newspapers, and I would cite the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic magazine, among them, have, have raised the alarm in some you know headlines, and they've talked about the, the threat that Trump poses more so than they have uh, in recent years. Why are they so late in identifying Trump as a threat to democracy? And what does our media need to do now, in your view, in advance of the November election, to further warn the American people about the Trump Republican threat to U.S. democracy.
2: The media has spent so many years saying this isn't the case, that there's some other explanation, that it's not just what it obviously is, that they're a bit embarrassed about walking back their absurdity over the past five or six years or whatever when all of this fascism talk and autocrat talk and authoritarianism talk was relegated to neither the left-wing press or the centrist press. But the New York Times is very reluctant to go that way until recently. So now what do you do? Uh, You have a media environment in which Trump is very cleverly, not at all like a charlatan, uh, behaving exactly like any fascist would, claiming the other side is is the democratic threat. Uh, And being extremely open about his intentions, he's going to replace everyone in the government by loyalists. Uh, He's going to target the universities, the schools. Uh, This process is called Gleichschaltung in the literature on Nazi Germany, where every organization, every government institution turns loyalist, like is transformed. Their employees are replaced by people loyal to the leader and loyal to the party. And Trump has already announced he's going to do this. So he's already announced a full fascist plan. Uh, he hasn't announced a genocide of a particular group other than immigrants and LGBT, traditional targets of fascists. In any other conceivable sense, what we have is a fascist social and political movement um, with a fascist leader. And so the media, you know, what is the media? Do I have a recipe for the media? Well, they can't both cider any anymore. Um, you know, they can't treat this as a horse race. Uh, Well, it's a horse race between autocracy and democracy. And, And there's no reason to think democracy will be more popular. It often isn't.
0: Well, we only have a couple minutes left, and I wanted to just ask you this last question, Professor Stanley. On the topic of violence, Trump regularly issues threats to his perceived enemies, judges, prosecutors, election officials. This has resulted in armed attacks, bomb threats, swatting attacks more recently, and mass murder in the case of white supremacists and anti semites whose attacks in Buffalo, Pittsburgh, and El Paso incited by Trump's language and other Republicans and right-wing media commentators spewing racism and hate. I mean, people are dying around this country uh, because of this incitement. Uh, What is your concern about this election season we're in and the prospect of more violence than we've even seen in the last couple of years?
2: Well, I don't know if concern is the word I'd use because I expect there to be a lot more violence. I mean, look at what happened to Paul Pelosi. Somebody, you know, hopped up on conspiracy theories, hit him with a hammer. The rhetoric that we're hearing completely justifies political violence. Uh, the supporters who are listening to this of rhetoric have a lot of guns. I don't understand why people are surprised when the sun rises, you know. The sun is going to rise or the sun is going to set on American democracy, and that process will be very violent.
0: That was Jason Stanley, Jacob Rowoski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and author of How Fascism Works. His latest book is titled The Politics of Language, co-written with David Beaver. Find more analysis and commentary on the threat Donald Trump poses to democracy by visiting our Between the Lines website, at btlonline.org. According to statistics cited by the National Center for Drug Abuse, 45% of the U.S. population has tried marijuana at least once, and 55 million Americans are regular users of the drug, also known as cannabis. 41 states, as well as the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, have medical marijuana programs and 23 of those states have decriminalized cannabis or have full adult recreational use programs. However, marijuana remains illegal at the federal level, classified as a Schedule I drug that has a high probability for abuse and has no accepted medical use. On January 12th, federal research papers were released finding that cannabis may have medical uses and is far less likely to cause harm than drugs like heroin. The Food and Drug Administration and the National Institute on Drug Abuse have recommended that the Drug Enforcement Administration make marijuana a Schedule Three drug, alongside ketamine and testosterone, which are available by prescription. However, the lead organization that's been fighting since 1970 to make marijuana legal for adult recreational use says this new development may not portend big changes in federal law. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhus spoke with Morgan Fox, political director of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, or NORML. Here he assesses what this potential federal change could mean for people who use cannabis or have used it in the past.
3: The president uh, called for a review of scheduling last year, and we were... uh, Relatively hopeful that uh, you know because this was a symbolic victory, but this process has to go through several federal agencies. So, Food and Drug Administration and Department of Health and Human Services were reviewing the issue. And a couple of months ago, a letter was leaked, or at least a heavily redacted letter was leaked from Health and Human Services, directing the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, supposedly to uh, to reschedule cannabis to uh, Schedule Three uh, according to the Controlled Substances Act. Health and Human Services looks at scheduling according to an eight-point review plan that they have. And supposedly, you know, I think a lot of people are under the impression that the DEA has to follow that same eight point plan. But in the last four times that they've reviewed cannabis's schedule on the Controlled Substances Act, they've used their own five point criteria, which basically allows them to disagree with HHS's recommendations based on medical issues or science. All this is to say that while a lot of people are expecting the Drug Enforcement Administration, who has the final call on scheduling to make an announcement to move to schedule three relatively soon, The fact of the matter is that we don't know if they're actually going to do that or if they are going to do it when that will exactly happen. You know, it's entirely possible that they will uh, recommend that cannabis stand schedule one or move to schedule two instead of three. So we really don't know exactly what the future holds at this point.
4: What defines, you know, schedule one, two, three, and four? I mean, what's the difference between them?
3: All the scheduling below 1 have uh, nuances and variations, but the I think the most important one is in Schedule 1, which is a determination that a drug has a high potential for abuse and no accepted uh, medical uses within the United States, which clearly does not apply to cannabis. And luckily, we've started to see both from the president and from the Department of Health and Human Services that they no longer feel that definition is met by cannabis. It's really important to talk about what these things would actually do. So a move to Schedule 3 would essentially not do anything in practice when you look at the practicality of state cannabis laws, because moving to Schedule 3 at the federal level would not resolve the conflict between existing state laws and federal law. Every single existing medical cannabis program or adult use program at the state level would continue to be in conflict with federal law if cannabis was moved to Schedule 3. So there's a big question on whether or not compliance would be enforced. Right now, it's not being enforced. And I find it doubtful that the FDA would start putting resources into enforcing such compliance at the state level, but it's entirely possible.
4: And, and just say a little bit at least about what Schedule 3 would do or not do.
3: Schedule 3, in theory, would allow uh, state legal cannabis businesses to be able to uh, deduct normal business expenses on their federal taxes. But that's in theory. Uh, Again, we're in uncharted territory, so it's not certain that that would actually happen. But what it would not do is end any criminal penalties at the federal level for cannabis. It would not directly impact a lot of federal agencies in terms of being able to hire people with past cannabis use or current cannabis use. It would not remove any barriers to research and would not uh, undo any of the harms caused by cannabis prohibition uh, at the federal level. Um, It also would not legalize things like interstate commerce or international trade. Normal has long been of the opinion that cannabis should be removed from the Schedule of Controlled Substances under the, uh, the Controlled Substances Act entirely, a term we call descheduling, and treated in a manner more similar to uh, alcohol and tobacco, but utilizing best practices from state cannabis programs, deferring heavily to states, and recognizing the uh, relative safety of cannabis when compared to things like alcohol and tobacco.
4: Is it right that cigarettes and alcohol, are not, they are descheduled? They're not scheduled at all?
3: that's correct. Yes, they're uh, they're regulated by a uh, a branch of the Department of Commerce called the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. The practice right now for the Department of Justice is to defer to state law and to not prosecute individuals who are acting in compliance with state law, whether that be medical or adult use. They still have the ability to do so, but that is the general guidance that the Attorney General has issued to federal prosecutors. And that policy has been in place since basically 2013 or so, and continued to uh, be the uh, the operational practices of federal prosecutors, even after Acting Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinded what was called the Cole Memo, which was the official guidance to leave states alone and not interfere with their programs. Federal prosecutors who had been operating in these areas continued to recognize that it was a waste of their resources and continued to not prosecute people who were in uh, compliance with state laws.
0: That was Morgan Fox, political director with the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, or NORML. For more news and commentary on reforming U.S. marijuana laws, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Since the Supreme Court's radical June 2022 ruling that overturned the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion in the U.S., successful battles have been waged in states across the country to restore reproductive rights. Since the Supreme Court decision, seven states have either defeated ballot measures to outlaw abortion or enshrined the right in state constitutions. Voters in up to 12 states will decide the fate of abortion rights in referendums expected to be on the ballot this November. But in recent months, courts have been pushing in the opposite direction. On December 11th last year, the Texas Supreme Court blocked a woman whose life was in danger from receiving a medically necessary abortion, forcing her to receive emergency reproductive health care in another state. On January 5th, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld on a temporary basis, the state of Idaho's right to enforce its strict abortion ban even in medical emergencies. That law, the Defense of Life Act, makes it a felony for anyone who performs or assists in an abortion, with penalties of imprisonment for a minimum of two years and a maximum of five years. The U.S. Supreme Court will also be hearing a case in coming months that could ultimately eliminate public access to the drug Mifepristone the most commonly used abortion pill. Your reporter spoke with Carrie Baker, Sylvia Dugash-Bauman Chair of American Studies and Professor of the Study of Women and Gender at Smith College, who is also a contributing editor at Ms. Magazine. Here she talks about post roe court rulings that have further restricted reproductive rights, dangerously outlawing medically necessary abortions,
4: to save lives. So the, the cases that you mentioned in Texas and Idaho both involve bans on abortion that have very, very narrow exceptions only to save the life of the pregnant person. And what we've found is that those exceptions are basically meaningless because doctors are very hesitant to offer abortions when the penalty is years in jail, to having their medical licenses taken away, huge fines. And so often what the doctors do is they refer the patients out of state. And if the patients are in a state of emergency, of course they can't do that. But in this case, the Biden administration issued a ruling or a a regulation saying that a federal law called the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act it requires that federally funded hospital emergency rooms provide care to people in emergency situations, no matter what, they said that that requires that doctors provide emergency care, including abortion care if necessary. And if that conflicts with the state law, the federal law preempts the state law. And that was the argument that the Biden administration made. And there was a lawsuit filed by the Department of Justice in Idaho, challenging the Idaho law, saying it was preempted by this federal law. And that's the case that you just mentioned, that the Supreme Court last Friday accepted, agreed to hear the case, and in the meantime, allowed the Idaho law to remain in effect, endangering women's lives. Now, there's another case in Texas that's similar, where the argument is, is that the Texas law is preempted by this federal law called EMTALA. And that, unfortunately, the lower court judges in Texas also ruled against the Biden administration and let the Texas law remain in effect. So this issue is going to be at the Supreme Court. It'll be argued in the spring, and a decision will be down by June. But I think it's it's indicative of the fact that anti-abortion legislators and judges and attorney generals really don't care about the lives of the pregnant people who, you know, have these emergency situations that they really only care about fetal life if that's really what it's about at all it's hard to know and they don't care about the lives of the pregnant people.
0: Yes, and it just seems I think to any person even someone who is steeped in anti-abortion belief system it's just inhumane. The horrible details I've heard in some of these cases with Kate Cox in Texas was they were going to have her wait in a car to bleed out until she was almost dead. And then only at that point would they provide the the care she needed, the medically necessary care. That's outrageous. That's crazy. Yeah.
4: Yeah. No, I I mean, I think that we are going to see people die because of these laws. And, uh, you know, and they don't seem to care. Governor Greg Abbott was— determined to keep Kate Gox from getting medical care in her emergency situation. He called all the hospitals in town and threatened them if they because a lower court judge had ruled that Kate Cox was entitled to get emergency care. And then he appealed that immediately and called all the hospitals in town and said, you better not provide that care. And so she eventually just left the state to get the care that she needed. But his sort of aggressive attempt to block medical care for a woman whose life is being threatened is just inhumane.
0: And Professor Baker, I did want to ask you, about miscarriages, because we've recently read about an Ohio woman who faced a felony charge after she miscarried at home, and someone at the hospital, I believe, called law enforcement where she was booked. I don't think she was eventually charged on some technicality, but it's another example of the kind of extremism we see in some of these states that are, by and large, have super majorities of Republicans in their state legislatures and in the governor's office.
4: Ohio was the state that passed a referendum last November to legalize abortion in the state. And that's where this happened. This was a woman who was having a miscarriage. She went to the hospital. They wouldn't. This was before the referendum. They wouldn't treat her. She went home. She went back to the hospital, still in the middle of a miscarriage. They refused to treat her, sent her back home. And then she had the miscarriage while she was at home. And then after the miscarriage, went to the hospital. And that's when they asked her, well, where is the fetus? And they ended up charging her with abuse of a corpse, and the grand jury refused to indict her. But again, it's another example of where women are suffering because these anti-abortion laws. And, you know, both Kate Cox and this woman in Ohio are women that wanted to carry pregnancies to term. These were not women seeking abortion. These were women that had complications during their pregnancies and then were punished. That was Carrie
0: Baker. Professor of Women and Gender Studies at Smith College and a contributing editor at Ms. Magazine. Find more news and commentary on recent court-ordered abortion restrictions by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOOL in Bellows Falls, Vermont, WZMO in Marion, Ohio, KBCS in Bellevue, Washington, ...dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad... ...and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mika Ta. This week's program is produced by Susan Bramhall... ...Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.